right, you ready to go? I'm ready. Okay, cool. So, welcome everybody. Today is Monday, August 27th, 2012, and today on the podcast we have as our guest, Stuart Sierra. Welcome, Stuart. Thank you. Um, we'll get in a minute to why we wanted to have you on today. There's a variety of reasons, but the first thing that we always ask our guests is, what are people listening to right now as the intro music? I will go out on a limb here and suggest the first Gershwin piano prelude. Cool. All right. Yeah, that's definitely a bit different than most of the other <laughs> things we've had on, although there has been a fair amount of variety, so that's very cool. Are you, uh, you, you play a bit of piano yourself, right? Yes, I've uh, played piano uh, most of my life. Cool. Awesome. And is Gershwin a particular favorite? Or? Yes. Yes. Okay. What do you like about it? Um, well, uh, he was a pianist, a very good one, and he could, he really used the, the instrument to its full potential. Uh, I can't play it very well, but with people who can play it, it's, uh, it's quite impressive. So it's kind of a piano player's piano piece. Yes. Gotcha. All right. Well, uh, today, today, as I said, we have Stuart Sierra here. He is a developer at Relevance, a member of Closure Core, and the author of many, many uh, interesting uh, bits of closure code, and we'll talk about some of those a little bit. But um, one of the reasons that I wanted to have Stuart on, aside from the fact that um, you know he's a really interesting guy, is uh, that he actually has a project that I think a bunch of our listeners are going to be pretty interested in. Um, Stuart, you mentioned this to me, and I said, yeah, now would be a great time to have you on and talk about that. Maybe you could uh, tell our listeners what I'm referring to. Uh, yes, that is a new book. Uh, I already have uh, one book, uh, Practical Closure, co- co-written with Luke Vanderhart, and he and I uh, have collaborated on a second book. This one is called Closure Script: Up and Running. Awesome. Yeah, I've been using Closure Script a little bit myself, and um, it's it's a really interesting project. I'll, I'm going to throw it back over to you in a minute to talk about it, but uh, I think. Uh, you know, there are a lot of closure books right now. I mean, there's, what, six, I think? Something like that. At least. Yeah. Um, but there really isn't anything out there right now for a closure script. Is that right? Uh, no, not that I know of. Okay. Uh, this will be the first. Okay. So that's really exciting that um, people are going to get a chance to use this pretty cool technology. So t- tell us a little bit about, um, maybe a little bit about closure script, the language. We've discussed it briefly. Well, more than briefly, we had Brenton Ashworth on when we uh, released closure script one, but... Um, that was a while ago, so maybe you could bring us up to speed. What exactly is ClojureScript? Uh, so ClojureScript is a, a compiler. It is a new compiler for the Clojure language that emits JavaScript as its output. So just like the Clojure that exists now compiles to Java bytecode, uh, and there's a port to the .NET runtime that emits .NET bytecode, uh, ClojureScript emits uh, JavaScript as its uh, as its output, and that's interesting because it's interesting because you can now uh, target environments where JavaScript is the primary or the only uh, executable technology. Obviously, uh, web browsers being the primary target, but also uh, Databases, PDF documents, all sorts of embedded systems. Uh, JavaScript turns up in a lot of uh, interesting places. And you can now use the power of the Clojure language in uh, any of those environments. Awesome. Uh, yeah, and that's exactly been my experience. I mean, I haven't done a ton of it, but it really has been great to, um, to have. I mean, for me, part of it is that I'm just less familiar with JavaScript than I am with Clojure. And so, you know, having 
because it's largely compatible. I mean, it's like it seems like it's ninety nine plus percent, you know, closure that you're used to from the JVM. Oh yeah, everything everything about the language itself uh, is the same. The data structures, the way you write functions, uh, it's all identical. Uh, or it aspires to be identical with uh, closure on the JVM. The only places where it differs are where you're actually dealing with the uh, environment. So things that are dealing with uh, native types in the environment, like JavaScript strings or dates versus Java strings and dates, those things will be different. So you you, uh, you said something interesting there. You said that it aspires to be the same, which is... Uh, so ClojureScript's pretty new, right? I mean, obviously there's no books yes. on it yet. So uh. Uh, Yes, it was first released uh, last summer, summer of 2011, uh, and has been uh, growing very rapidly since. When you say growing very rapidly, you mean like more people are using it? or um, uh, More people are using it, and but a lot, of, a lot of work has been going on, and it has been gaining a lot of features. So uh, when it was first released in 2011, it only implemented... Uh, a subset of closure the language and now it's pretty near complete certainly as complete as it can be on uh, a javascript uh, environment yeah so i want to come back and talk about closure script itself a little bit more in a minute but i um i want to loop back to the book because of course you know yes. we've we got you on the show um um and you know uh, i'd love to have luke on at some point too but i, I wanted to talk to you because there's other things i want to discuss you discuss with you too um so what made you guys think that you know, now was the time for the book. Like, what's first of all, what's the what's the publication date? Um, it is uh, available now as a beta release or an early release from O'Reilly. Um, it will probably be finished uh, sometime this fall. I'd say uh, late September or early October. Okay, cool. Before the conj, then. Yes, definitely. Awesome. Will we want to have it done before the conj? Okay. Um, and so what was, you know, what made you guys, when did you decide and how did you decide to write a closure script book? Um, it was, uh, I, I got interested in doing it uh, early this year. Uh, one, I knew some folks at O'Reilly who were interested that actually asked for uh, a closure script book and they were looking for someone to write it. Um, but also uh, we noticed from talking with people at users groups and uh, just casual conversation that a lot of people were interested in closure script, but they really had uh, a hard time figuring out how to get started. Um, it was a very young project. It was rough around the edges. There was very little documentation. Uh, so people just didn't know how to get into it. And closure script one uh, got a lot of interest, I think, because it was uh, a good way in for a lot of people. Uh, so we wanted to try to build on things like that and uh, give uh, a clean a clean entry story for for people who are interested but just don't know where to begin. Okay, so is this is this a beginner's book or I mean how what's the kind of the story of the book where how is it? It's it's a beginner. It's a book for beginners to closure script. It uh, is basically designed to take you from starting out with with nothing to downloading the right things, uh, getting them set up, getting a development environment set up, and uh, through to using the language to develop applications, primarily targeting uh, web browsers. Um, it does not assume uh, any prior knowledge of Clojure. 
So it is not a book uh, for people who already know closure. We do uh, cover all of the fundamental details of the language, but because it's largely a book about getting started, we don't try to cover everything in the language. Uh, We cover enough for you to get started and then refer you to books about closure, most of which will apply equally well to ClojureScript once you've got a development environment up and running. Do you think that there are going to be a lot of people who are going to want to use ClojureScript that aren't already using Clojure? I mean, in other words, you know, just in terms of the audience for your book, are you primarily getting people that are like, yeah, I know Clojure and I want to use ClojureScript because they work well together? Or do you think there are a lot of people that are coming to it fresh because they tried something like CoffeeScript and they want a more powerful language? Or, or what, what do you think? Um, certainly, I think the... The, init- the, the early audience for ClojureScript was and is people who have already realized the advantages of Clojure and want to apply it to client-side programming in a browser. Um, I think uh, that's, that's definitely where, where we've gotten the most interest. But there is also clearly there's a lot of activity and interest just generally around targeting JavaScript as, uh, as a compilation target. Um, I, I've been joking lately that uh, you know, all, all the cool languages have, have uh, JavaScript compilers now um, because everyone, everyone needs to target uh, the web browser as, as the application platform. So uh, you know, certainly people who are willing to look at JavaScript as a platform and not just as a language that you write in, uh, I think they'll be exploring ClojureScript along with uh, other, other options like uh, CoffeeScript or other languages that can compile down to JavaScript. So we, we've both kind of alluded to um, uh, you know, the, the advantages of Clojure and how, as you say, you, know, you, want to have, you want to leverage platforms that can run JavaScript and yet you want to take advantage of Clojure. What so for me, when I've done this uh, ClojureScript in projects, um, there's been a couple of advantages. One is just it's just one less language. And I actually think that's a big one. I'm of the opinion yeah. that it's really easy as a developer to you know, grab another tool out of the bag, but that we are really bad at understanding the cost of that. So I think there's a sense in which um, having one less language is, is just this hidden win. Another thing that that I find when I use ClojureScript is, um, you know, having a, a syntax, like a data syntax that the two sides of the connection can share yes. is pretty handy. Um, you know, because I can, on the Clojure side, if I've got a vector and I want to hand it down to the browser, it's still a vector and there's a serialization format built right in. Yeah. Are, are those the two primary advantages or is there other stuff? I mean, why, like, what is it about ClojureScript that you find compelling? Um, you've definitely uh, hit on on two of the big ones, having having a single language and uh, a single data format that you can exchange between uh, a server running Clojure and uh, a client running ClojureScript. Um, I, I think one of the uh, a slight slightly different view of that um, is that the the real big win there is having the same data model. Uh, you can actually use the same data structures in the server side and the client side of an application. And in some cases, if you're careful, you can even write the code to manipulate those data structures once and then share it. Mm. You can compile it once uh, 
as Closure running on the JVM, and then you can compile it, the exact same code, compile it as ClojureScript running on uh, in, in a web browser. Um, obviously, there are some caveats to that. You have to be careful that you confine yourself to the subset that is identical in both languages, but it's not that hard to do. Uh, we've, we've been able to do that on, on projects uh, here at Relevance. So that'd be useful for things like validation. Yeah, validation, um, data modeling, or simply propagating updates to a data model between a client and a server. Uh, you can, if you have the same data structure on both sides, then it's very easy to just send a description of what changed uh, over your AJAX network connection or what have you. And you can have a very compact, efficient uh, way to communicate changes between servers and clients. Hmm. Do you, so what, what's your take on um, the adoption of ClojureScript? I mean, obviously, Clojure in general, at least, you know, from being at relevance and seeing demand by clients and kind of watching the, the ecosystem. And it's hard always to get an unbiased opinion of anything, especially when you kind of sit at the center of it, which to some degree we do here. But what do you, what's your take on ClojureScript? Like, is it, is it, you know, there was a lot of initial excitement and now it's steady growth or is it, you know, skyrocketing or what do you, what's your take? Um, it's still, it's still early. I think, uh, in part because it's still uh, not uh, not very well documented or very well understood in general, which is the kind of thing we, we wanted to write a book to try to help. Um, it's uh, not something that uh, people are necessarily committing to right now. I think uh, a number of people are exploring it. Uh, although we have had uh, clients come to us interested specifically in uh, ClojureScript because they've already experienced uh, some of the benefits of working with a language like Clojure, and they want to expand that benefit to uh, their client-side applications. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting times. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to. Um, so I'm going to Strange Loop. I think you are as well. Yes, I will be speaking there. Oh, that's right. Uh, what are you speaking on? Uh, good question. Uh, I'm speaking on uh, design patterns in functional languages, primarily Clojure. Oh, awesome. Uh, that'd be great. I'll definitely have to check that one out. Um, so I'm looking forward to uh, going to Strangely to check out your talk, of course, and the, all the other ones. But um, uh, also um, the conj, and because when I was at Clojure West, um, I know you were there too, uh, one of the really cool things was just to kind of really get a sense of the speed at which we're seeing technologies like Clojure and ClojureScript pick up. I mean, you know, uh, you and I, and, and you more than me, have been really into Clojure for a long time. Um, in fact, when did you first kind of come to it? Long time being relative. Uh, well, I got sure. to it in uh, 2007 uh, when Rich Hickey gave uh, one of his earliest talks about it to the Lisp NYC users group. Right, because you're based out of New York. Yeah, I live in New York. Yeah, we're both actually sitting. It's unusual for us today, for our listeners, that Stuart and I are sitting across the table from each other, which is it doesn't happen very often. I live in the D.C. area, and he lives up in uh, in Washington, D.C., but we're both have, in New York, rather. But we both happen to be here, so it's, it's pretty cool. We thought we'd take the opportunity to have a conversation face-to-face um, and share it with you, of course. Um, so that 2007, I mean, it, closure wasn't even wasn't even 1.0 yet, right? Oh, yeah, it was many months before 1.0. And you really got involved in a big way. I mean, your name was all... I mean, I came to it a little bit later than you did, but not, 
you know, not a ton. I think for me it might have been 2008 before I was really into it. Um, <laughs> humble brag. Um, uh, maybe not even so humble, but um, yeah. It's, but, you know, by then, you know, you looked around and you saw a few names, um, you know, Chris Hauser. Um, but Stuart Sierra was a big name. I mean, you had a lot of the a lot of the initial libraries. Is that still a big part of your work? Um, I know you, you do some of the some of the gardening for Closure Core. Are you still, you know, active with contributing and developing new libraries? And uh, Yeah, I'm still involved. Uh, I've definitely uh, backed off from uh, being as, as heavily involved in, in writing libraries uh, as I was. At the time, it was largely because I was actually using Closure for my work at the time, so I was scratching an itch. Uh, writing utilities that I needed. Um, and uh, a lot of those have uh, been sort of expanded out to to be maintained by the broader community because they're so generally useful, things like strings and IO utilities. Um, but I'm still, uh, I'm still working on closure libraries. Lately, I've been doing a lot of work on the tools namespace library, uh, exploring... Some ideas I have about how to uh, manage uh, closure namespaces in a running process and reload them during development and things like that. Hmm. That sounds I mean, interesting because it's something that I've that I uh, have gotten benefit out of both with um, ClojureScript One and also with Noir that I've been using a bit recently. Yeah. They both do that that dynamic reloading of namespaces, and it's it's pretty cool. I mean, Rails developers have the same the same basic idea. What I mean, what what like what's what are you what are you doing like what's the innovation or the the hard problem you're trying to solve or give me the idea so so what I'm trying to do uh, with tools namespace is uh, provide a way to actually do code reloading correctly. It's pretty easy to do the simple version where you just reload a bunch of namespaces uh, whenever a file changes or in the case of a web app on every web request. Um, but you quickly run into problems as uh, your code gets more complicated, uh, as you have dependency relationships between namespaces, uh, for example, a protocol defined in one namespace and uh, an implementation of that protocol in another namespace. When you're reloading them, you have to do it in the right order. Otherwise, you're going to end up with very bizarre uh, errors that are, are quite hard to explain. Uh, so what I've done with Tools Namespace is actually write uh, code that can parse the namespace declaration in a closure source file and figure out what its dependencies are and then build a graph of all the namespaces in your project with all the dependency relationships between them. And then when you change a file, uh, it can recognize what changed and figure out exactly what needs to be reloaded in what order. So theoretically, uh, it can reload all of the code in your application if you've made a change that actually impacts everything in the application. Is that, I mean, one technique that I use a lot when I'm developing, and it falls down uh, with protocols, um, is I'll just, you know, have like the main namespace or the top-level namespace, the one where, it kinda, where things kind of come in, and I'll just do a require reload all. Yeah. Is that, does, does this offer some advantages over that, or...? A little bit. Um, so one thing it will do uh, is ensure that the namespaces are loaded in a strict dependency order. So reload all because 
technically everything's already been loaded. It will just load them in the order that they're required by, by the files. Um, the other thing it will do, and this is still an experiment that I'm working on, uh, it will remove, uh, actually unload namespaces before loading them. So the uh, advantage to this is that if you make a mistake, as I commonly do, and you delete a function that ends up being required somewhere else, um, you might not see that because it's still in memory. It's still available in your running right, process. Right, this one bites me all the time. Yeah, yeah so one of the things that, that Tools Namespace in its reloading code does is actually remove all of the namespaces in reverse dependency order and then reload them again in dependency order. I did not know you could even do that. Well, it wasn't easy, and I can't promise that it will work uh, in, in every situation. Um, it's definitely, it's, it's a very hard problem to solve in, in the completely general 100% of the time case. I'm aiming to solve it in maybe 90% of cases. Sure, They're not just enough so that you can write your code and keep on hacking at the REPL, and every once in a while things go a little wonky, you just restart. Yeah. Um, this came, I mean, this was all motivated by a project we were working on where it had gotten so big and there was so much code that it literally took 30 seconds to start a new JVM and load all the application code. Uh, and that got really, really annoying uh, because it was slowing us down. So that, that was what inspired this. Um, like I said, I don't know if it's actually going to work. It's still kind of an experiment. Um, but it's, it's been a really interesting problem to work on. Is this something that you work on on Fridays or as part of your project work? Are you working on it in your spare time, or how do you manage that? Uh, I've been doing a lot of it on uh, Friday time uh, here at Relevance and also a little bit uh, in my spare time. Hmm. What, uh, that's really cool. I'm, I, I've seen a couple messages go by on one of the mailing lists about uh, the, the work you're doing on tooling, and I, I, it's really cool to hear you explain that further because it seems like the sort of thing that um, – I mean, the namespace kind of says it all, right? Tools. And yeah. you and I both remember, and it's amazing that we've come so far, right, around tools, but you and I both remember that, you know, even two years ago, if you asked someone coming to Clojure, what's the biggest pain point? It's the tooling sucks. Yeah. And, you know, thanks to the efforts of people like um, Phil Hagelberg with Linegan and um, Counterclockwise, um, with Laurent Petit doing that, uh, it's a lot better now. That's not to say oh, it yeah. couldn't get way better, but... But I think having solid libraries that can do things like namespace um, reloading just makes that a lot easier. So is that is that a contrib library? Yes, that is a contrib library. It's on the uh, github.org slash closure slash tools dot namespace. So contrib sort of has an interesting history, and you were a pretty big uh, played a pretty big role in that. I, I wonder if you could tell people about what contrib used to be like and then what it's like now and what the, the kind of you know, turmoil and getting from point A to point B was, if you don't mind talking about it. Yeah, not at all. Um, it's it's an interesting story. I actually, I wrote a whole article uh, about it uh, earlier this year, I think. It's on the Clojure blog. Um, so, yeah, back when, when Clojure Contrib started, it was basically just a second source code repository. Clojure was, uh, all the Clojure code was in subversion at the time. Um, and the only person who had commit access to the language itself was Rich Hickey, the creator. Um, but there was a general need for a place where people using Clojure could share, uh, share code and share utilities and libraries that they came up with. Um, so 
uh, Rich, I think, created uh, a second subversion repository and made it more open. There were maybe 15 or 20 people, uh, and I was one of them who had, had commit access there. Um, and it was, it was really just people sticking in code that they found useful. There wasn't much planning. There wasn't much organization to it. This was long before we had tools like uh, Linegan or Clojars to deal with dependencies. So we, it was really the only central place to find uh, closure libraries. Um, so it, it grew la- that way for uh, another year or so. Uh, and then uh, eventually it just got uh, really unwieldy. There were something like 60 different libraries all jammed into this single source code repository. Uh, a lot of them had been more or less abandoned by their original authors because yes. they'd moved on. I wrote one that got abandoned. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I wrote several that, that I, I abandoned. You know, I, I can't deny it. Um, but and but it was really it was really hard to maintain, and I was trying to maintain the build for a while. And you know there were there were sixty some libraries, most of which I hadn't written. And if there was one bug in one of them, then the whole thing wouldn't build. Um, so we, you know, after a lot of discussion uh, in in Closure Core and with the community in general, we we realized there was really no option. We had to break it up. We had to be able to let individual authors work on individual libraries uh, on their own. And some of that was already happening in the community with tools like Linegan and uh, sites like Clojars to be a place for people to share code. Um, so I guess you could say the the mission of Closure Contrib shifted at that point to be uh, a place for uh, libraries and tools that had been donated to Closure. So the actual copyright has been assigned to Rich Hickey and Closure in general with a promise that they will remain open source uh, now and forever. Um, so there are now uh, several dozen uh, independently versioned and managed uh, Closure Contrib libraries. And they are all uh, under the Closure organization on GitHub. They all go through a unified uh, continuous integration process. We have our own Hudson server. We deploy uh, jar files to Maven Central. And we've basically tried to make that a, a central place for widely distributed, wide, widely useful closure libraries. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in there. What's, what's, the, uh, what's the most underrated one? What's the hidden gem in there? Ooh, the hidden gem in, uh, in closure contrib. Well, uh, a good, there, there are lots of good candidates. Uh, I mean, obviously there's stuff that people talk about, like CoreLogic. Um, uh, David Nolan has and others have done a lot of work on building a really a really powerful logic programming system for Closure. Um, but one of my favorites that I think is is underappreciated is uh, Test Generative. Mm. That's a uh, uh, a testing library, uh, an extension to the testing facilities uh, package with Closure. Um, that uh, enables uh, a style of testing that. Uh, relies on generating large volumes of random inputs and basically trying to find places that will, trying to find inputs that will break the function under testing. Um, It's a very interesting approach uh, inspired by libraries like QuickCheck in Haskell. 
not quite as sophisticated as those yet, but um, definitely uh, an approach that we've uh, used to to good advantage on on some of our projects. Cool. Well, you mentioned project work just now, and that actually brings up one of the other questions I wanted to ask, which is um, you've been at Relevance for quite a while. I mean, we're we're growing pretty quick. We have been for for years now, and uh, you started. I want to say it's close to two and a half years ago now. Gosh, has it been that long? I guess I feel like yeah, it must have been about because uh, uh, I, I started uh, as a contractor in spring of twenty. 11? 2010, I 2010. think. Because you started yeah. before I did. Yeah. So um, uh, so how did you, what did you come to Relevance? I mean, you said you were doing closure since 2007. What was your... Um, yeah, I was working at uh, Columbia University, and I was also uh, a part-time grad- graduate student there. Um, and uh, I was enjoying it, but uh, in 2010, I'd finished my uh, master's degree and was looking to move on, and wanted to continue using closure if I could and at the time relevance was relevance was the the place to do that yeah uh so have you enjoyed it i have it's been it's been a lot of fun um uh it's it's a great group of people they've got uh you know really smart people we get interesting clients uh i've i've had a lot of fun so we talk we've talked a bunch of times on the show about um you know things like retrospectives and the other aspects of um the, the process here. Um, I shouldn't say the process. I, I like to say that we actually have a process for creating a process. We, we tune it to each each. We have each a meta problem. process. A meta process, exactly. Um, what, I, I wonder if you have any insight. Like, what's the... It, so it's interesting, right? Because a lot of us came to Relevance because we wanted the opportunity to work on closure stuff. Um, and, and for me, it's kind of like I came for the closure and I'm, and I'm staying for the process to some degree. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you think there's some sort of synergy there? Like, is there something about about working in our particular agile way that fits well with the the typical closure mindset? I, mean, I know I'm you know painting with a broad brush there, but is there is there some sort of synergy there? This is just something that occurred to me recently. I, I think you know the, the the process that we have or the meta process is mostly I think. For me, my my impression is that it's really about uh, questioning uh, everything that we do, uh, not not taking things for granted or not making assumptions about how we're going to work or what tool we're going to use, and uh, really trying to find answers that we can support with evidence. So actually finding ways to measure things, uh, and I think that that technique is is applicable to to any language but uh, I also think closure has uh, attracted people who like to be able to understand the code that they're writing in a very thorough way uh, it's not enough that it just that the code works and that it passes the test it's nice to be able to actually uh, understand why it works to be able to uh, take measurements, analyze the performance, uh, things like that. And so there is, there is some, some relationship there, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a little bit, but I like the way you put it. That's, uh, that's a good way of putting it. Um, so you said you were doing your master's at Columbia. Yes. What, what, was, your, what was your degree? Uh, well, my degree at Columbia was uh, just a master's in computer science. Okay, because the reason I ask that is because I know that you have a background in 
in the theater. Yes, my uh, undergraduate degree is in theater. So we had Rich on the show recently, and um, you know he uh, started out in music and then yes. moved to computer science. Obviously, very successful. And the same with you, started out in the arts, um, came to uh, computer science, and have been very successful. Um, I've really enjoyed working with you. Uh, if you ever get a chance to work with Stuart Sarah, I'm telling you right now, you should take it because uh, it's <laughs> it's a lot of fun. He'll he'll make your closure code better, any of your code, I'm sure. But uh, that's where I've gotten a chance to work with him. But um, I mean. Aside from the fact that I imagine, you know, that the money is better, right? And that's got to yes. be a factor. You know, you got to eat, and New York's not cheap. No. Um, what what was that What was that journey like for you? I mean, you know, did you did you have plans to be an actor, or was it you didn't know and it seemed interesting, or how did that work out for you? Yeah, I mean, it's not that I, that I uh, shifted from theater to computer science. It's actually more that I came back to computer science. Uh, I, I was, uh, you know, I started playing with uh, computers and programming in basic on DOS when I was a kid. Um, I was always interested in, in programming and uh, might have very nearly uh, done my undergraduate degree in uh, computer science. Um, but uh, I'd also gotten really interested in theater, and uh, when I got uh, accepted to uh, NYU's uh, undergraduate theater program, I decided, okay, that's what I'm going to do for, uh, for four years, and I did. Um, I did uh, briefly uh, toy with the idea of being a professional actor and tried to do that uh, for about two or three months before I realized that was not something I wanted to be doing for the next 10 years, although, you know, it's, it's a fascinating world, but it's, it's a world that's very hard to get satisfying work in. Mm. And uh, I had always been interested in uh, computers and in programming, and so I was able to uh, get some jobs doing that and uh, also go back and do the master's degree. Cool. So do you, you find... Um you said it's hard to get satisfying work. Yes. Do you, do you find uh, programming satisfying? I do. Um, when it works, you know, there, <laughs> there, are, there are always those days when you sit staring at the same stack trace for four hours. But um, uh, it's, it's definitely very satisfying to, to figure things out and to be able to to make things happen. I mean, that's always been the the magical thing about programming for me is that you, it's 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 like magic. You write down words and things happen. It's it's I don't know any other any other field where you get to do something like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I think you said the word magic, and that to me is that's you know I, I'm a kid that grew up reading a lot of fantasy, um, and you know I played Dungeons and Dragons, all that stuff, and so. Yeah. Um, I, I came to I think I came to programming out of a desire to create in a certain way, um, probably familiar to a lot of our, our readers. But I've always been struck by, you know, you, you know, you think of the classic wizard in fantasy, and as you say, you know, you use words and stuff happens, and that's basically magic. It's a very very interesting phenomenon. Well, words in an arcane language in an arcane. that no one else speaks. Right. Although, uh, you know, hopefully we're we're changing that a little bit at the time, right? I mean, it seems like uh, programming is cooler, and we're seeing adoption in our the that is to say, your and my preferred language closure. So yeah. Um, but yeah, certainly to to most people, they don't they don't uh, they don't understand the spells to the same degree. Um, 
Well, this has been super interesting. I mean, uh, I want to. I think it's about time to wrap it up, but um, I don't want to take it too much more of your time. But before we go, I would like to uh, ask you and give you a chance to um, you know, let people know if there's anything interesting you're working on or something you want to promote or. I don't know, maybe a show you're in that they should come see if they're in New York? Or No, I don't do much uh, uh, performing anymore. Occasionally I uh, uh, do uh, improv, uh, improv comedy performances, but uh, that's about it. Okay. Well, is there, is there some place people can go to catch those if you're... Uh, well, if they're interested in, in that sort of thing in general, I can highly recommend the People's Improv Theater, also known as The Pit. Uh, it's uh, in New York. They have shows every night of the week. Awesome. And uh, on the technical front, anything cool that you're working on that we didn't get a chance to talk about? But... Uh, I don't think so. That's, uh, okay. that's pretty much it. We have sucked your brain dry. You have. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you a ton for coming on. Um, I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, well, it's been my pleasure. And before you go, we should have uh, ask you the last question, which is uh, what should we play for outro music? All right. I'm going to send you on another wild goose chase here. I think we should have uh, Oscar Peterson playing On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. All right. I look forward to the search. All I right. certainly don't have that one in my personal MP3 collection. So I didn't think so. All right, great. Well, thanks a ton. It was super interesting to talk to you. I'm really excited to read your book. Um, actually, I didn't know it was available in beta, so I could go out and start uh, checking it out right now. But uh, certainly, whether I do that or not, I'll be picking it up once it, uh, once it hits the shelves and reading it from cover to cover. So uh, Great. Uh, thanks again for coming on and uh, I hope to have you back sometime you can tell us more about what else you've been working on whether they're crazy libraries you've come up with or neat projects you've run across that'd be good to have you back cool okay thank you thank you and thanks everybody for listening this has been Think Relevance the podcast Thank <laughs> you.